Well, hello, uh, welcome to the second For the Love of Science podcast. Uh, today's issue um, of discussion is going to be about women in science. Um, but I'm, uh, I'm not alone, I'm with some, uh, some guests. So uh, if you would like to introduce yourself, so I'll start off with... Okay, so I'm, I'm Hanna Kokko. I'm a professor of evolutionary ecology at Zurich University. Um, I'm Debbie Lee. I'm a PhD student at the University of Zurich, working on alpine ibex. I'm Patricia Lopez, and I'm a behavioral neuroendocrinologist, uh, meaning I study animal behavior from the perspective of the brain and the hormones. And I'm currently a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Zurich. Okay, uh, well, thank you very much for that. Um, so I said this podcast is going to be uh, is going to be focusing on women in science, but we're only going to be discussing uh, a small number of issues. So this podcast will focus on the different issues female scientists face at various stages of their careers. So we're not going to be covering all aspects of issues that women face in, in not only science but other STEM subjects. Um, due to time constraints, uh, but I will be adding links uh, on the website for further information. Um, so I'd just like to start off with you, Debbie, so mm -hmm. as an early stage researcher. So uh, so what made you become a scientist? Well, that's, that's a long question. That's a long <laughs> answer, if that's okay. But basically, I've always wanted to be a scientist. Um, so when I was five or six, and I was really that young, I went to a birthday party, which was my friend didn't want any presents. She just wanted everyone to donate money to Jane Goodall's um, charities and um, conservation trusts. And Jane Goodall is a very famous uh, primatologist and a very famous um, just female scientist. And so seeing someone who did that, I thought then at that age, well, that's what I want to do. And I have pieces of paper from primary school saying when I grow up, I want to be a zoologist. <laughs> I can remember having conversations with people from a very early age telling them that I was going to be a professor and a zoologist and do all of this. And certainly I haven't reached that stage yet, but at the moment I'm doing a PhD in evolutionary conservation biology. And I kind of stumbled into that during my master's when I developed a really strong interest in genetics and conservation and tying the two in together. So that's kind of what led me to where I am. But there are a number of other people who have really inspired me along the way. Okay. Uh so uh, now, uh, moving on to the issues that you have faced or, met, uh, or um, some issues that you, you have experienced uh, from other female scientists at your level. So can you uh, elaborate on some of the issues that you've faced? Do you mean sexism specific issues or just issues that female scientists face? Um, that you faced or... So I think um, if I just focus on the sexism question, yeah. because that's what I was thinking. Yeah, that's fine. It. Um, the biggest issues I face at this level are, um, well, they actually really come from my peers. So it's interesting. I was thinking about this a lot when you asked if we wanted to do the podcast. And I was trying to think about the worst things that have happened to me, the things that people have said to me. And I was like, well, it's really, it's a really great thing because it hasn't happened from a higher level. It's just been from people at my level. And often they're quite small. So there are things like um, people interrupting me and... Um, like much more so than they would do with my male colleagues. Um, there's this thing called mansplaining, which is where a male colleague or a man in general will interrupt a woman and explain something to her which she's incredibly capable of understanding and probably does understand herself. This I have a lot. 
Um, and I mean, I don't know if you guys have the same thing, but the biggest thing for me is the communication thing. People not um, necessarily respecting me immediately when I walk into a room. People are generally very surprised when they find out how I work. So I work with Ibex, so I have to sample the Ibex using biopsy darts. So I have to use a huge rifle and I can shoot with this rifle. I mean, we don't harm the animals. Uh, it's all ethical, <laughs> I should say. But um, we have a big pressure rifle that we use and people are generally very surprised when they see me with this. And uh, they often find it very funny, actually. Um, and they don't take it very seriously. Uh, but yeah, the biggest thing is just always coming in at what I feel is sometimes a lower, a notch lower than my male colleagues. Um, and sometimes you have to be very forthright to kind of bring yourself up and not take it. And then that can also lead to, is lead to issues because people can think that you're being arrogant or um, that you are not respecting them. Um, when really what you're trying to do is just make sure that they understand that you do understand what's happening and you, you're on an even field. Mm. Uh, so one thing well, we also discussed last week um, which I didn't even realise was an issue due to my ignorance uh, was actually um, same sex sexism um, I watched a, um, a video podcast which I'll have the link to um, it's, uh, it was the North East Conference on Science and Scepticism uh, and they had a women in science panel discussion uh, and a lot of the, uh, the issues faced by the women on that panel were from other female peers so uh, have you experienced any of that in addition to the it from male colleagues? Um, yes, but it's in a different way. Mm. Um, and you guys should jump in here. If you have yeah, yeah, I, I don't know how you want to do this because you said like one person at yeah. a time. So yeah, it's, it's, fine, yeah. it's fine. You guys can, ju yeah. you guys yeah. can jump in. Um, yeah, for me that has happened. Um, so I guess the biggest thing is it's communication, but in a different way. Um, and then sometimes people just, uh, like, sometimes people at the top pull the ladder up with them. And that's a big issue in science in general. They've done this, they did this study in PNAS where uh, they um, gave a CV for a lab technician of a male, and with a male and a female name, and it was exactly the same CV. And... Um, male and female professors judged the female CV much more harshly and um, really gave the male CV a much higher offerings of salary and were much more likely to take that person. So it's an unconscious bias that everybody has. And I hope that we've reached a stage now where it's not conscious in a number of people. They're not saying, you know, I think that women should, you know, like not succeed. I don't think that that's the case because women are at every stage in science. I think it's just that there's a lot of unconscious biases that people have, and it's challenging those unconscious biases that um, is the stage that we have to be at now, in mm. my opinion. Mm. If I can just say something here, because mm -hmm. you gave me permission to do so. Everyone is free to Exactly. I just didn't know how to, how to plan this. Um, I'll just ramble on. <laughs> because you mentioned the rifle and the Ibex yeah. and the surprise mm -hmm. element in that. And I was wondering, maybe it's just sort of me and my attitude, but, um, well, I haven't used them used a rifle to shoot ibex but <laughs> but i i do fairly mathematical work and mm -hmm. that's also something that based on my sort of initial looks people don't necessarily expect until they learn that this is the case and you could actually 
And sometimes you think that it's almost an advantage because there's a bit of a surprise element and then uh, therefore people remember you because you are just not doing the norm thing mm -hmm. and therefore a lot of scientific success is actually about visibility. So I um, there's one story that I like to tell in this kind of context where it's, it's actually you could take it as a horrible story because it was a horrible thing for somebody <laughs> to say. I was I was way younger than I'm now, and I was giving a seminar. I was an invited speaker at a department somewhere, uh, University X, <laughs> and and the person who took me, um, I think it was a train or plane or wherever I was coming from, um, said that oh yeah, initially we actually didn't think of inviting you, but then we noticed that there was no female speakers, so we were kind of forced to blah blah blah, and he just sort of said it kind of. I was like oh shit, oh, great, um, but. Uh, but whatever the reasons, uh, you could also think that, okay, well, now I could be like totally offended for the whole day, or I could just sort of say, well, I'll force feed you my research down your throats anyway. Um, and therefore, you know, just kind of like live with it and be yourself and give your talks and yeah. Shoot your biotech <laughs> darts. <laughs> uh, so uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, he has a really good, uh, he coined a, I, I guess he coined it, coined a really good phrase, which is paradigm of expectation. So as an African-American uh, in high school, he um, he was always interested in astrophysics. And the teacher was like, are you sure you don't want to go into athletics? <laughs> sure? So then, yeah, so paradigm, paradigms of expectation. Um, so how do you think we can improve this? Um, I mean, we'll probably discuss this at the end because I think it'll be a recurring theme. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, so how do you think we can sort of break down the barriers and make um, loads of female STEM potential STEM students from engaging in STEM subjects, um, even if they they might be taboo or some taboo surrounding them for example um so i my personal opinion is that um at my level um there is a huge number of of women mm. um who are very dedicated who are there and the reason that they're doing phds is because they're very interested in stem subjects so at my level it's it's not getting people into stem it's it's keeping them in stem mm. that's the main issue so the getting people into stem has to happen at a much younger age. It has to happen at the, basically, I mean, um, we gender, we decide on like gender roles at uh, a very early age. You can watch um, like videos where people talk to children and they ask them why there's a pay gap between men and women. And you can already very easily see sexism in some young children. They may be five or six years old. So I think the most important thing is to already from an early age, like at five or six, be showing children that there are huge different types of people in STEM subjects and um, having that visibility there is very important. And I think that's why I always thought I could be a scientist is because from that very early age, I saw female scientists and I actively then went out and I sought them. And I would read books about Jane Goodall. I would read books about Diane Fossey. And um, that to me was really inspirational. So I think the visibility thing is very important at the start. The keeping women in STEM, mm. that's a question I can't answer. I think yeah, that... Yeah, we'll probably uh, talk about it later <laughs> yeah. on. <laughs> yeah. um, so uh, in the panel discussion I spoke about earlier, the, um, the moderator of the discussion, um, 
Gian Garbarino, I think. Um, she asked the audience to name a woman in science that wasn't anyone on this panel and is not Mary Curie. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so we'll probably discuss that at the end. Okay, well, well thank you very much for that. So, uh, so next we'll move on to uh, an early-ish stage researcher <laughs> in, in Patricia. So what made you become a scientist? Um, well, nothing really made me become <laughs> a scientist. But ever since I was a little girl, I, was, uh, I always loved animals. Mm. And I think that just developed in, in a curiosity about, uh, and a passion about trying to understand how living beings work, uh, what makes them do the things they do. Mm. And puppies. We like talking about puppies. And puppies. <laughs> um, so, uh, so what issues have you faced as an early-ish uh, stage researcher, um, which were different for when you were a PhD? Yeah, um, so I think the issues haven't gotten very different, and I have been fortunate that at all of the stages of my career so far, I have had mentors and advisors, both men and women, that have been extremely, that are extremely supportive of women in science. Um, so my relationship with these bosses have, in a way, sheltered me from some of the issues that women face. Mm. Um, and in a way, I think moving a little bit now to the solution side, I think this is part of the solution. So. Um, if as a mentor, an advisor, a professor, or someone in a leadership role, um, you can instill confidence in the people under you, so this relates to what Debbie was talking about, about having a voice, um, you, you can, you're giving people a voice. Um, and, and you're letting those people know that regardless of gender or any other issues, that, um, that they're capable of, of doing science. And I believe that not having a voice is a big thing that holds people back. So I think part of the solution is, one, giving people the confidence to speak, um, and two, creating safe environments where people feel like they can contribute. And I think uh, we, we are many times when, when we're in rooms with men, uh, the conversation many times becomes dominated by men. And it's hard to find your voice in those uh, situations and to speak up. Uh, and so if we can promote uh, these behaviors in our classrooms um, and, and with the people that work with us, I think we'll be doing uh, great things. Um, and then these behaviors can hopefully extend beyond the classroom mm. um, and lead women to advocate for, for themselves, for example, uh, for salaries, uh, which they often don't do and then have they have lower salaries as a consequence yeah so uh, obviously you covered everything in that um do you guys have anything to add to that can i just ask you a question yeah do you feel so you you, you were t we were talking about the dialogue and how the dialogue can be very like male dominated um when you approach a table and there's a lot of scientists there do you feel like the gender ratio in the room affects things? So if it's extremely male biased, do you feel like it's worse? Or is it kind of always the same? I, I think it's worse. Mm -hmm. I, I feel even at lab meetings, if there are more males, the conversation tends to be more male dominated. Maybe there's that's a probability too, but um, yeah. So uh, do you think there's a, an effect of uh, age 
So do you think the older male scientists uh, are more domineering than young, young male scientists, or do you feel there's no difference? I think it's the opposite. What? I think that sometimes you get the young male scientist and there's a lot of chest beating. I find I don't know though I could be wrong that that could just be very particular people and I don't want to insult insult anyone because I think you're you're a great like you're a, uh, an advert feminist advocate and there are a lot of feminist advocates even like like I can name more than a handful in our university it's just like I feel like sometimes there's a lot of um I don't know I feel like people want to carve out a niche and carve out respect from people and so mm. some people can really I, I i that's my personal experience i i tend to have problems with young people mm. you're just talking about both confidence and also the sex differences and you know individual differences which you also alluded to and i'm, I'm just going to say something that comes out of a gut feeling rather than i, I have no you know number evidence for this but if you think about the people who you know among your peers there's always people who are actually better than they think they are. And then there's also people who, <laughs> honestly, you know, they think they are better than they are. <laughs> and I, I, I know, you know, a lot of co my colleagues, I would say that both men and women can belong to the category where their skills are actually higher than they think. Uh, but when it comes to the opposite category, it's kind of hard to think of women examples that, you know, those who really think they're the greatest ever. But actually, when you look at it, yeah, it's... And maybe, maybe it's that sort of when when you say categorically that men are more confident or interrupt or whatever. I mean, there's a lot of variation, but there's sometimes somehow seems to be that they're kind of are we allowed to curse here, assholes? <laughs> it's it's fine. I, I, I could bleep it out. <laughs> <laughs> you you know the the type that I mean. <laughs> that um, there, there certainly is a bit of a sex bias there. And I, I think that's, you know, when, when it comes to how to solve the problems, I think the confidence is the big thing mm -hmm. there because you need a certain amount of confidence to even write that application mm -hmm. to get to mm -hmm. the next stage of that fellowship or whatever. Um, and if that's not there, then, you know, the leaking pipeline keeps leaking. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think you're, uh, you're afflicted by that because uh, obviously you're very humble. Um, but when, whenever Me? I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, you are. Well, I mean, when, when, whenever your name comes up in a conversation, people are just—I've uh, never heard a single bad word spoken about your your science. Oh. <laughs> um, is your head getting heavier? <laughs> um, yeah. So I mean, I think that's. But I mean, you, you are very uh, prominent on social media, and so I think you uh, you are making headway. Um, or what's the question? <laughs> Sorry. It was, it was, Sorry. It wasn't really no, distracted. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. really a question. It's just, it's just, a, it's just a, a statement. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. No, that's okay. Um, yeah. Anyway, keep talking. <laughs> I, I, I wanted to add that just because my bosses have been really good at this, it doesn't mean that I haven't heard egregious things from other people uh, throughout my career. And these were things, uh, so I did my PhD in the US. Mm. And while there, it was suggested that I was only there to find a husband. <laughs> uh, and this was said by the counselor at the international office. Really? This is the person that's supposed to be helping you with visa applications. 
And um, at a different instance, for example, at an engineering meeting, I was told, are you an engineer? You're too pretty to be an engineer. Uh, this was said by an older man at a time when engineering societies are trying to recruit more women into, uh, into becoming engineers. And again, looking back at those times, uh, what I wish I had was a stronger voice and I wish I had responded to these people in a way that would have educated them not to say this to, to other people. So again, I think it comes back to having the confidence and, and the voice. Mm. Okay, so now uh, if we move on to a not so early stage researcher. <laughs> <laughs> the humble one. <laughs> um, so, uh, so what made you become a scientist? Well, I, I can't say, like Debbie said, that I've always known it from a, whatever, a really early age. It was more a uh, thing. I was always interested in nature, and I was all, also extremely keen to read every single popular science book that was in the local library when I was a child. But it wasn't such a decision. It was more, uh, when I think back, it was at every stage I just felt like it can't stop here yet. It was mm. just like I, I'm... Every stage I got quite positive feedback, as in I was doing quite well, you know, already high school, the math. Maybe I should actually tell this story because it's, <laughs> it's, kind, of, it's kind of funny, um, even though it's a bit self-promoting. Um, but I was already <laughs> told <laughs> that I'm humble, so I'll tell it anyway. Because I was, I was at high school and there was, um, so the maths teacher was trying to prove something on the um, whiteboard or whatever they were black, back then, blackboard. And... Um, at some point, I had to raise my hand because I had a dentist appointment and I had to just kind of like leave the room. And he looks at me because in the middle of the calculation, I raised my hand. It was kind of like, oh, my God, where did I make a mistake? <laughs> so, and I actually remember that because it made me feel like, you know, if my math teachers were <laughs> afraid of me, <laughs> then I can't be too bad at it. <laughs> so, I'll take so, away your mo your humble... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, exactly. Like. You, have to, you totally have to... <laughs> But the but but it's just this example that when you when you realize that you know the things that you're trying to do are uh, you actually oh this was a bit difficult but I actually did relatively well then it just makes you not want to stop quite yet mm. so you just always want to kind of like go into the slightly deeper pool and so on and at some point it was kind of like oh my god the next stage is do a PhD oh that sounds scary but I don't want to stop yet so something like that. Mm. Uh, so now moving on to the issues that you face as a as a not so early stage researcher. Mm -hmm. So what do you think have been the main? Um, I well, I I'm not one of those who who say that you know then I got discriminated against this way and then I got discriminated against that way because I I just honestly I don't think I've I can I can say much about that I um, I I feel that I've been treated very well in in this field. Mm. But if I, I thought about this question before I came into this room and I thought if there's one thing that is actually a big issue and again I don't have a solution, it is that science is so international and it's it has to be international because if people don't move then um, you know everything gets stifled and horrible and ideas don't move and so on. But I think for a lot of colleagues who I've seen leave science, female colleagues, it's actually, I might actually tell a story that uh, I won't mention names and I will change the countries involved and all those kind of things. <laughs> but um, let's say that there's there's a young couple. They are both at the ends of their PhD. And um, she gets a fantastic postdoc offer. And let's say it's in Germany. 
he gets a fantastic postdoc offer and let's say it's in Boston. So what do you do as a couple? And uh, I was chatting with her then and she said that, well, you know, the uh, I'm going to follow him. There's nothing for me there, but it's a lively university surrounding, you know, all those kind of things. I'm, I'm optimistic I will find something. And then you meet her or I met her again a couple of years later. So they had split up anyway. And what had happened was that she had said no to this thing that would have been so perfect for her. And it's not like, you know, I'm not going to blame him as in, you know, horrible man did this to somebody, destroyed a career and so on. It was a joint decision. There was optimism. It didn't quite work out that way. But the question here is that when you hear these stories, and there's many more that I have, um, it tends to be the woman who somehow made this decision yeah. to compromise. And, you know, you can ask, why does it have to be that way? And, and then you also meet those women who, despite these things, it actually worked out. And they tell you that, of course, it's possible to combine career and family and all that. And But the sampling bias is, of course, there. So it's not a happy story, but it's, it's a true story. <laughs> Um, so that actually is a good segue for, for something that, we, that we're going to talk about now. Uh, and it's, I guess it's quite a sensitive subject. But, um, but when I've been doing the research for this podcast, I found that it, it still is a big issue. And that's the issue of trying to balance a family uh, science um, seesaw. So um, does anyone want to... Well, I'm kind of wondering why you look at me. <laughs> I was looking around I don't, the room. I don't have a family. It's a problem solved. <laughs> so, so. Do you have a family? Uh, yeah, I have a husband. Yeah. Um, uh, you want me to give you a solution? I, I don't think no, I have No, or just, uh, <laughs> I mean, um, do we have examples of where, where we know that women have had to leave their career because... Mm. They basically had to. They've come to a crossroad. They can either have a family or, or carry on with science, and they've had to leave science due to that. So, I fortunately haven't seen anyone leave science, but there was an issue that came up when I was discussing with some of um, my older um, peers in the group. So the women who are married with with children, and um, this was two instances in the same year where the um, female scientists who are both excellent researchers had applied for grants that were um, not 100% working time, so um, shorter percentage, lower percentages, so fewer days of the week where they're working because they have families or, or um, well, bo both of them have children. And um, both of the grants were rejected because purely because they asked for three days or four days of working a week. Um, that was the only reason they were rejected as far as I know. Um, and that to me was really shocking because I don't think it makes you a less good scientist if you only work three or four days a week. Yeah, of course not. Of course not. I mean, there's also a huge amount of research that says that people are more productive mm. when they take uh, time for themselves. And I mean, it's, it's really... As a, as a young researcher, it's really, um, yeah, profound to see that happening and really disheartening because it makes you think, well, is this something I would have to sacrifice if I want to reach my childhood dream of being a professor? And I hope not, but mm. that was, to me, a really um, devastating thing to see. 
Okay. Um, so uh, yeah, thank you for all of your um, your your inputs from your your individual uh, your individual stories. Um, so now we sort of want to open up the floor um, to various uh, dis discussion issues that have been raised in the podcast. Um, and I think the first issue that we can discuss is. Um, do you think a way to encourage more women to go into STEM subjects is to, to try and increase sort of uh, popular scientists, science communicators who are female? Because if you, I mean, I don't think I can name a single popular science communicator. I mean, for men, we have Brian Cox, Bill Nye, Neil Tyson deGrasse. Um, and I think that's an issue because I think if you went to the street and you asked a thousand people, name a female role model, I think maybe 90% uh, of them will say Beyonce. She's not a bad female role yeah, model. Yeah, she's, yeah. <laughs> I mean. Um, but I mean, I don't think a single one of those would say uh, a female scientist. I, I think that might work. Having role models has been shown to be important in other fields, but I also, I think we need more data in general. Mm -hmm about what works, what are the issues in the gender gap, what underlies those issues. And we need to make people aware of what comes out of that research. Le the, the example that Debbie was talking about on the, on the study of the two resumes with, with different names that were discriminated upon. If we become aware that we are doing this even unconsciously, uh, we, can, we can try to reflect and, and try to avoid those behaviors. So I think getting data uh, is, is really important to really know what we should be doing. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess a lot of that will be qualitative, not quantitative. So it'd be quite hard to, to analyze the data <laughs> in, in, in a very robust way. But. Well, in, in Debbie's example, it, it was a quantitative study. Uh, mm. They got yeah responses for, from several different people on the same resumes and but so in a way you know that study was not actually pointing what is the solution it was just saying hey look there's a problem so i guess the it is it is actually because like your question was does it help if the presenter is a female or the science mm. communicator is a female and i guess there's a study there's a study in there if you do want to look at the effects of that but yeah. but is that really what we yeah i don't know so if anyone from the ERC is listening. <laughs> um, I think they did act upon that study. Uh, they did uh, a workshop and okay. they talked about the results. Uh, and they had roundtable discussions trying to figure out solutions. And then uh, the people there, they, they did surveys and they came out um, less. I think I think just building on from what you said I think it could make a difference to have a lot of female reporters but this is um, scientific reporters excuse me because being so I grew up for a large part of my life in the UK the only female scientific communicator who I can think of is Kate Humble mm. from um, Springwatch and, and but she's not but she does get people very interested in science mm -hmm. and nature. Um, and and I, I mean, th I think that's, uh, sorry to butt it, I think that's more uh, naturalist. Uh, I mean, it's not pure science, for example. But people like, things like Springwatch and 
David Attenborough's life series are phenomenally important mm -hmm. in inspiring young scientists. I mean, at Edinburgh, where I did my bachelor's, they used to play us uh, Blue Planet over lunch to because it's so educational mm -hmm. and it was so helpful for us and really inspiring and it kept people very interested. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons I think it might help to have more female scientists um, in the public eye mm -hmm. is because, uh, like we were saying earlier and like... Um, Inez was just saying, a lot of the biases that we um, uh, we face are um, unconscious. Mm. And so if you get exposed to things um, more and more, you, uh, you, you start to lose those biases, I feel. Mm. So just having that exposure might help people to challenge and become more accustomed to female scientists. And so they're less likely to have these unconscious biases. Mm. I, I mean, I think a really good... A role model for, for science at the moment is there's a UK TV presenter called Liz Bonnet. And she's um, uh, most of the things that she speaks about is pure science. And so um, I think people like that uh, are really good to try and break down the barriers. But I mean, I, I think the, the unconscious uh, biases, I mean, it's just, I think it's just such a stupid thing for you to have a bias about women in STEM subjects because I mean I'm sitting next to a really esteemed scientist here's your humble black <laughs> bank um, I mean to think that um, women are somehow inferior in intellectual subjects I mean I mean this isn't I mean I'm just going to throw an example out there this isn't working in a steel mill for example I mean women can work in steel mills of course but I mean, this, I just don't understand how people can have these biases, that there is somehow a difference. It's just insane. I, I remember somebody telling me this story, and now I didn't actually check the facts before walking into this room, because <laughs> it just came to my mind now, again, that in um, symphony orchestras, when they are choosing musicians, uh, there used to be a, a huge bias, as in men get ahead in their careers faster and all those kind of things. Mm -hmm. And then they did a very simple thing, and it would just be wonderful to be able to replicate it in STEM, but we can't, which is that when they do the, you know, trial, you know, they play some piece, they do it behind a screen, mm. so you can't see the person. So you just hear him or her, and the sex bias just disappeared in yeah. one go, if I remember right. Um, and uh, this is actually something when you're in... Because I, I, I do work for various grant panels and things like that. And it's sometimes discussed whether it would be possible to have like anonymized CVs. But if you think about it for two seconds, it just does not work. I no. mean, you can, you can do double blind mm. in a paper, which I think is a great idea. But when you're sort of handing out grants and you try to sort of talk about your achievements without revealing who you are, it's yeah. just sadly, it's hard. It's hard. Uh, but uh, so, so that's what I do now when I'm recruiting for volunteers for my research uh -huh. project. All right, okay. I, when I first get a CV, I'll just uh, hold my thumb above the name and just, and just read it. Um, I mean, as it happens, actually, when I have these applications, I have a huge female bias. Mm -hmm. And the quality of the female applicants is a lot better. And so I've only employed three men since male 2011. Male? <laughs> <laughs> uh, May 2011. Um, but yeah, so I, I mean, I don't care sex, uh, race, um, or, or sexuality in, in the applications. I hire whoever's the best. 
So, for example, if it's two women, are best are higher then. If it's two white males between the ages of 18 and 25, are higher then because they're the best. And so I think more people need to just have this relaxed attitude towards because, yeah, I, I, I don't care. I will just employ who the best candidates are. And it, so far it's happened to be women because they put a lot more effort into their applications than men do. Um, but, I mean... I guess it's the tragedy of the commons because how are you going to start implementing that into into society? I think the other thing that you have to think about as well is that this is a great approach, but mm. when you get higher up the ladder, women get older, and you have to think about, well, unfortunately at the moment we have this discrepancy with parental leave. So mm. um, in Switzerland, what men are allowed two weeks and women are allowed four months. And so a lot of women take a little bit longer so they'll take maybe six months and so you you're losing half a year of your scientific career and if you have several children you you can end up um um taking about a year and a half off or a little bit longer mm. and so sometimes you have to factor in like that as well and and so while the anonymizing approach is is a good baseline i think sometimes you also have to think about what well, has this person taken a lot of time off mm. and and then factor that into the publication um record basically um so uh, you, you may know information about it so you may not know uh, being from finland uh, and they have uh, really mm -hmm. good maternity and paternity care systems uh, do you think that, that this isn't so much of an issue or well i think there um it's certainly way better than it is in a lot of countries but i can just I can only repeat what I said earlier, that science is so international mm. that you cannot actually, and I think it's actually a healthy thing for the science, uh, that you cannot hope to live all your career in one country. Mm. So it, it becomes much more of an issue. How do I organize this? Uh, if there's family, like, you know, suddenly I have to spend a year in California, which some of my friends with children have done. Mm. And, you know, the children grew up to be totally reasonable characters. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, of course, it's harder than this sort of default option of going through life having your job at the local you know wherever whichever town you happen to grow mm -hmm. up in so the challenges are bigger and that may then discourage some people from either having the family or ha having the scientist career and that's something that one country alone cannot solve because it's great while you're there but you cannot be there your whole life it's mm -hmm. just the way it is um, does anyone have any further points that they would like to raise? Uh, we still have some time. Well, I, I guess just to go back to why I think it's important to have data is if we go back, uh, at least in the U.S., women make, I think, $0.86 cents on the dollar mm. for, for what men make. And, um, and so if I'm aware of that, I will negotiate for a, a higher salary. Uh, if, if I'm, I might not even be aware that I can negotiate for a salary if I don't know uh, about this type of data. Yeah, that's actually a question that I would... I'm not saying I don't believe you, um, as in how one should react to that thing, but I, I think there's an interesting question in there. I, because sometimes I feel when we are bombarded with all these studies that, oh, you know, if you're a woman, you can't even negotiate your salary. And if you're a woman, you do this and you get interrupted more and da, da, da. That is kind of, it's almost like it's reinforcing a stereotype that, you know, mm -hmm. why do you even bother? Because, you know, you with your woman traits, you will be, <laughs> you, um, so 
I'm not saying that no data is the solution either, but there is the question that if you spend all your waking hours just thinking about how you might be discriminated against at the very moment, it can also be very discouraging. Um, and just personally, I mean, I'm an N equals one sample, but <laughs> I've I've never quite understood why the role model has to be the same gender as you are. If, you know, if I see somebody who has done really exciting work and goes into cool places and does this and that, so even if it, hap if it happened to be David Attenborough or, you know, name your favorite male scientist, I'm kind of like, oh, that's cool, I want to be like him. Mm. Why does it have to be a her? And, and how to get these young children the idea that, you know, it doesn't matter what color the skin is or what, you know, what nationality, what gender, uh, just take them as role models as you please. Mm. So you don't think that um, uh, women um, can relate to female role models than they can? Well, I mean, I'm going to contradict myself because, I, <laughs> of course, I mean, it does happen and you sort of see evidence that depending on how these, are, these things are portrayed, it doesn't have an impact. But I'm kind of like, maybe this is sort of advice that I give to my younger female colleagues that try to get a bit of a thicker skin in these things um, as in you know there will be people who say stupid things and just brush them off and laugh at them and tell your female friends how stupid they were <laughs> have a good laugh and a beer <laughs> sounds like really good advice <laughs> <laughs> good advice. Uh, okay so if there's no other discussion points um, I'd just like to thank everyone at home for listening and I'd like to thank uh, Hannah, Debbie and Patricia um, for, for joining me in this podcast. Step off the